they had time for this to go out. There we go. Whoop. Um, so we have a live nativity scene. So the practice of nativity scenes kind of grew after Francis set this up, and it became incredibly popular. And, and, and so within a century, pretty much every church in Italy had nativity scenes. Uh, and then eventually, the um, human and animal uh, participants that were in these things were replaced by statues. And then they became popular not only in churches, but people started to have them in their homes. And uh, now, at the point we're at in the 21st century, we have nativity scenes featuring almost every imaginable uh, action figure and cartoon character. So, for example, we have the Simpsons nativity scene. <laughs> we have a Peanuts nativity yes. scene. Yes. Uh, there's a VeggieTales nativity scene. And, of course, every dog lover's favorite, dogs reenacting the nativity. <laughs> so, this Christmas, um, I would like to actually take the nativity scene kind of as a jumping off point. And, and the picture that ought to be in your mind uh, of the birth of Jesus is a typical peasant house in the first century in the Middle East in which animals slept on the lower level of the house in an enclosed space, and the people slept on the second floor. Now, Mary and Joseph would have been guests of some relatives or perhaps friends of theirs in Bethlehem. But the house of these folks was so overcrowded that the only place that Mary and Joseph uh, could stay was on that lower floor with the animals, and uh, that's why baby Jesus was placed in a feeding trough which was essentially a manger. That's what it is. It's a feeding trough. So who was gathered around the manger? Well, initially, we'll start with some of the animals. Let's say some sheep. So what spiritual lesson do the animals gathered around the manger teach us? Well, the Bible opens with creation way back in the first book of the Bible, which is uh, the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2. And the initial scene that we read about in the Bible is that we were created to enjoy a personal relationship with God and with other people as we also enjoyed um, the rest of God's creation in this good earth. But unfortunately, we read in the third chapter of Genesis that Adam and his wife Eve decided to go their own way. They rejected a relationship with God and then just decided to do their own thing. And so Adam and Eve's sin was effectively like a stone tossed in a pond. The ripple effect of Adam and Eve's rejection of God spread out and affected the rest of the world. It affected human society and it affected the animal kingdom and it even affected the ground itself. The whole world has been groaning under the weight of sin ever since the beginning. Now, place yourself in God's shoes. What's your next move? This good earth that you created has been profoundly damaged by human sin. <clears throat> Would you decide to just scrap the world and start over? Admitting that this world was broken beyond repair? You know, just cut your losses. No sense putting good money after bad. Take your ball and go home. Well, if you were God, <clears throat> and the creation that you made had been ruined, what would you do? 
Well, God decided not to scrap the world that he's made. And instead, he set out a plan to save that world. God's plan to save the world didn't involve just pulling a few people out of the world and then sending them off to heaven. God decided that his plan of salvation would go as far as the whole rippling effect of sin. God made a choice not to rest until every last corner of his good creation was rescued. As the wonderful old hymn, Joy to the World, puts it, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. To put it simply, just as sin began with individuals and rippled out to contaminate the whole world, so God's wonderful plan of salvation begins with an individual, Jesus, and then ripples out to save the rest of creation. While individuals are the bullseye of God's target of salvation, we're not the entire target. Society is rescued, and the animal kingdom is rescued, and the whole earth is rescued. So what do we learn from the animals that are there at the manger? That God wants to rescue the whole world, even the lowly creatures, from the terrible effects of people's sin. Next, let's consider the shepherds. Shepherds are there at the manger. We read this in Luke 2, 8 and 9. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Who are these shepherds? In Jesus' day, shepherds were at the bottom rung of the social ladder in Palestine. Shepherds were viewed in the same way that people looked at tax collectors and dung sweepers. Shepherds were generally viewed as second class and untrustworthy. In the centuries before Jesus' birth, shepherds were even deprived of their civil rights. They were not allowed to be judges in court. They couldn't even serve as witnesses. Some people felt that doing business with a shepherd was unwise, since it was assumed that anything that you probably bought from a shepherd had been stolen. Shepherds were related to in the way that gypsies were related to in later centuries in Europe. They were viewed with great suspicion traveling around and not rooted in a particular community. They were people to be avoided, people even to be afraid of. What is so wonderful about God choosing to reveal himself to shepherds? It tells us that God is incredibly humble and kind. No one is so low or so disreputable or so messed up that God won't reach out to them. God doesn't ask, what do other people think of you? And then if he gets a bad report, he says, well, then I'm going to avoid you too. God doesn't care what a person's reputation is. No one is such a failure or has done so many horrible things that they can't come to God. Friends, this Christmas Eve, there is no one that you could pray for who is so far gone that God cannot reach them.
Do you believe that God's grace can reach and soften even the hardest hearts? Do you believe that God could rescue anyone? Do you believe that God could turn anyone's life around that you have prayed for? God announces the birth of his son to people who are among the most despised in the world. We've looked at animals and we've looked at shepherds. What other faces do we find around the manger? We find Joseph. In talking to someone who practiced family law for a time, I learned that one of the things that they delighted in doing the most was adoptions. Being able to find a baby for a desperate couple, going to the hospital and having the hospital personally release the baby to them. They'd carry the baby downstairs to their car and put them in the little carriers. They'd strap them into the back of their car. And then they would drive the baby to their house where the couple would be waiting. The couples would generally be walking up and down the driveway, looking and straining to see when the baby would be coming. My friend told me, you cannot imagine how joyful the experience is of pulling up in front of your home, going into the back seat of your car, unstrapping a little baby, and handing it to a couple, saying, here you go. Here's your new son. Here's your baby girl. They get to watch the husband and wife dissolve into tears. I would imagine it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Let me read to you what it says in Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know, one of the most difficult decisions that a birth parent has to make is the choice of an adoptive parent. God the Father had to make this choice in deciding who was going to adopt his son. Why did God, out of all the possible choices in the world, choose Joseph to be the adoptive father, the surrogate dad, in his son Jesus' life. Mary became pregnant before she and Joseph came together. The only possible conclusion one could draw was that Mary had been unfaithful. Joseph had the option of publicly divorcing Mary, and that would have involved dragging her through a court displaying her pregnant condition, shaming her before the community so that she would never be accepted or received by anyone, including her own family. That would have been the common approach in the first century for someone like Mary. But what did Joseph decide to do? Let's look again at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The rabbis of the day provided for a private divorce in which a person could go before two witnesses and quietly break off an engagement. 
When God the Father looked for someone to be the adoptive dad for his son, he looked for someone who was exactly like himself. Someone who brought together integrity and mercy, high standards, and great grace. The Gospel writer says that Joseph was a righteous man. You know what I think about when I think about Joseph? I think of Joseph the carpenter cutting his boards straight and true. He didn't cut corners. He didn't substitute inferior boards for a more expensive kind. He must have been the kind of person who always gave his customers a square deal. He's the kind of person that when they shake your hand, you know their word is their bond, even if it causes them great loss. They're going to keep their word. They look you in the eye and they say, you have my word on it, and you can take it to the bank. It's rare these days, isn't it, to meet a man or a woman who when they say something, you know if you're in your heart that if they say it, said that, that it's absolutely accurate and true. They're not fudging things. Just like God. God said it in his word. You can count on it and you can put your faith in it. God always makes good on his promises. But just like God, Joseph was a merciful man. So many people who have standards fall in the other direction towards a rigidity, a harshness, a legalism, a Pharisaism. Do you know people that when you're in their presence, you always feel judged? You always feel like nothing you do is ever good enough? Do you know anyone like that? Your housekeeping standards aren't up to snuff. You're not a good enough parent. You weigh too much. The way you dress, the movies you watch are always the wrong choices. God is nothing like that. God is merciful. He's kind. He stretches out his arms in welcome to anyone who would come to him in faith and repentance. God welcomes anyone and he welcomes us joyfully. Why Joseph? Well, because Joseph combined in his person these two great qualities of God, great integrity and great mercy. So we've looked at animals, we've looked at the shepherds, we've looked at Joseph. Now let's look at Mary. If we read back in Luke's Gospel, we have this exchange between Mary and the angels. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so Mary, in hearing this, she says this. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Do you know, my friends, that your happiness and my happiness does not depend on getting what we want out of life? Getting the job you want, living a certain type of, you know, in a certain type of home, getting the recognition that you feel you deserve, being married, having your kids succeed in life. One of the best kept secrets to happiness is this. You can be happy even if life doesn't go according to your plans. You can be happy even if you don't get your own way. Mary discovered the secret to happiness. May it be to me, Lord, according to your will. Mary's let it be is totally countercultural to the spirit of American individualism and self-assertion. We believe the secret to happiness is found in having the freedom to run our own lives, having no one telling us what to do, calling our own shots, determining our own destinies. This stuff is as American as apple pie. A Christian is someone who has discovered the secret to happiness, repeatedly making a decision that you are going to have God's will and God's way control you. And there is so much freedom and so much peace when you finally say, along with Mary, let it be to me, Lord, according to your will. I've continually found this to be true in my own life over my entire adult life. Whenever I stop insisting on my own way, whenever I make a decision in little things or big things, and I say, you know, God, I'm going to choose to do your will in this thing. I'm going to let you have your way in my life. I find myself to be freer, feel lighter. I feel more at peace. I feel more whole, more hopeful. May it be to me, Lord, according to your will. We've looked at the animals and the shepherds, and we've looked at Joseph and Mary, all who were around the manger. So now it's time to look in the manger. To see the baby lying there as the angels told the shepherds. Luke 2, 11 and 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What the world needs above every other need is that we need to be saved. Listen, whether you, you're religious or not, whether you're a churchgoer or not, whether you consider yourself a follower of Christ or not, every one of us here today knows that we need to be saved. Every one of us in our hearts has a dream, a secret wish, a fantasy, which tells us that if we just got this one thing, then we'd be okay. If we just got this one thing, then we'll be saved. If I could just get this one person to love me, then everything would be okay. If my loved one's life would turn around, if they would just get free of their addiction, then everything would be okay. If I could just get married and escape my loneliness, then everything would be okay. 
If I could just get pregnant and have my own baby, then everything would be okay. If I could just get this one job, just get out of debt, just get a certain score on an exam, then I will be okay. This one thing, this one person, this one achievement will save me from failing in my life. It will save me from a life of mediocrity and emptiness. The Bible tells us that our problem in life is that we are looking to everything and everyone other than Jesus to be our Savior. We know we need to be saved, but we fixed our hopes and our dreams on the wrong thing. Have you ever had the experience of getting what you thought would make everything right, and then when you got it, it didn't make everything all right? You thought getting married would absolutely complete you, but afterwards you still felt alone. You thought having kids would be the best thing ever, but now you have incredible struggles with your kids. I read of a conversation another pastor had with a physician a few years ago. This doctor was the chief medical officer at one of America's largest healthcare systems. He said, I've done everything that the world tells me should make me happy. He had done fantastically well as an undergraduate, went to one of America's top medical schools, graduated with honors, completed a prestigious res residency, had a great job in a big house. And he said to this pastor with real sadness, is this all there is? Is that it? He had pinned all of his hopes on these saviors. High marks in school to make things right in my life. Going to a top medical school will make things right in my life. Getting invited into a great residency program will make things right in my life. Getting a top job, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, having a large house, having a beautiful wife. God says to us this Christmas Eve, you're looking to the wrong thing to save you. Look to me and not to something or someone else. God says to each of us this Christmas Eve, the reason I sent my son Jesus was to be the Savior Jesus came to earth on Christmas Day. He died for your sins on Good Friday, and he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. The reason Jesus was born on Christmas was to be the Savior. God says to each of us this Christmas Eve, if you want to be right with me, if you want to be saved, come to me. Put your trust in me. Ask me to forgive you your sins. God says to each of us this Christmas Eve, if you, want a if you want a relationship with me that will make a real difference in your life, for the rest of your life, come to me. Invite me into your life. God says to each of us this Christmas Eve, if you want to become my child, if you don't want to be afraid of death, if you want your life changed and transformed, if you want to find the thing that you've always been looking for, then give your life to me. 
the angel said to the shepherds and says to us, each one of us, this Christmas Eve, for to you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just give you so much thanks and praise that you have done this thing for us. That what we celebrate on this night of all nights is the birth of that Savior. And Father, let each one of us, those who have followed you for many years and those who may not even yet be there, let us all open our hearts to you this Christmas Eve. Let us all hear this story again for the first time. Let us marvel at the wonder and the beauty and the majesty and the peculiarity of this story. Why on earth, God, would you do it this way? But you did, and the rest is history. And now the choice is up to us. And so, Father, my prayer this Christmas Eve is for those that do not yet know you or who don't know you as well as they would like, that they would open their hearts to you and allow you to come in and to be their Savior. So we give you praise and honor and glory for that, dear Lord. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.